Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 71. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, my special guest is flow artist and master contact juggler, Richard Hartnell. Before I talk to Richard, I have to thank my sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Next week is the big week. That's right. It's the annual IJA Juggling Festival, June 24th through June 30th in Fort Wayne, Indiana. This year, the festival is directed by Mr. David Kane. Speaking of festivals, there's one on the horizon for next year. I'm very excited about I was talking to Kevin Axtell about Club Congress. It's not until January 30th and February 2nd of next year, but it always sells out. So put that on your calendar for next year. Club Congress in Emeryville, California. Let's thank the sponsor, me, by going to ringdama.com and buying a toy or amazon.com and buying my book, Driven to Succeed. All right, enough brouhaha. Let's drop everything and listen to Richard Hartnell. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 71. My special guest, Richard Hartnell. How you doing, Richard? Uh, pretty all right, Dan. How about you? Good, good. Now, you're also a, a resident of the Vulcan. I think I've had, I've had Bree Crabtree on. How long have you lived at the Vulcan? Can you explain to us what that is? Yeah, I moved to the Vulcan when I first got to the Bay Area at the end of uh, 2009. I'm originally from Bellingham, Washington. The Vulcan's like a smelting plant. It's an old smelting plant that's been, re that's been repurposed into lofts sometime in the early 80s. And it got cut up into 60 units where a unit could be like a piece of the old office with wood paneling and carpets and stuff. Or it could be a piece of the old forge with giant tubes sticking out of the walls and uh, I-beams everywhere and cranes and slag bits in the in the concrete floor and stuff. And eight of those units over the years have been converted into live-in circus studios. When I got there in 2009, there were three. The third had just been built, the prop box. And then, um, yeah, by now, I think eight or as many as eight at a time have been circus units. There are, there are a couple more that have closed and some come and go now. And it's uh, essentially, you know, two to seven people living together in a kind of uh, warehouse space with a bathroom and a kitchen and maybe like a sprung floor, a mirror wall, aerial rigging or hard points for rigging, poles, all kinds of stuff. And there's kind of always a jam session going on all the time somewhere in the Vulcan. If you like live there and you wake up and you're bored, you can kind of just go to somebody's house and then get on their floor and start spinning something or juggling something and maybe a little like spin jam will break out or something. And there have been some historic uh, juggling clubs and spin jams there over the years that ran for uh, every week for who knows how long. Um, there's still a Thursday jam there from 7.30 to 10.30 every Thursday in the prop box on the outside of the Vulcan out in East Oakland, California. And did you move here specifically to live at the Vulcan? I moved down to Oakland um, kind of by surprise. I thought it was, there were, there were a lot of reasons that I wanted to move to the Bay Area in 2008 and nine, including the circus community. I first discovered the Vulcan because I hitchhiked there over a summer because I wanted to see what was happening in a lot of different places, Seattle and Portland, Eugene, Davis, the Bay Area, LA. Uh, and then off to my first Burning Man. It was like a two-month trip. The Vulcan was on my radar because I knew there was this contact juggler there named Greg Maldonado who did the first trick on the internet that I couldn't figure out just by watching somebody do it on the internet. So I knew that they had a weekly jam and I went there and I found Greg and I was like, hey man, I'm from really far away and I came here to uh, to see if you'll teach me this role. 
And then we kind of stayed connected and stayed friends ever since, you know, went to this uh, event and that event, the juggling festivals and what have you. Eventually, when I kind of made the decision to commit to move to Oakland, he had a sublet coming up and he I ended up subletting his room for five months. And that was sort of my intro to the Vulcan. I stayed around there for a number of years, kind of in and out for, I guess, the last 10 years. People are not, uh, may not be familiar with your work. You're mostly known as a contact juggler. Take out the word contact out of it. Would you consider yourself more of a flow artist or a juggler? And what's the difference? I don't really draw a line personally, because if we're going to talk about things like flow, you know, in mixed company, we have to define our terms, right? Please, please. I'd be glad if you did that. I only am going to define one term, but I'm going to define it three ways. And the, and the term is is flow. Okay. Because uh, we're really talking, there's like kind of three things we're talking about. One is flow, like sequencing, right? Like if I'm like, hey, Dan, that last sequence in your juggling act, like it really, I really like that. I mm-hmm. kind of mean from one trick to another trick to another trick. And the goal really, one goal in what we're doing is to go, kind of go from that feeling of like trick, 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 trick to just dancing right? Or just like moving, flowing with a thing, right? The second definition of the word flow is like in parlance, I guess, is the flow state. Mm -hmm. This like somewhat well-studied sort of quasi-mystical experience when you're absorbed in like perfect attention and focus and you're sort of on the edge of your challenge, like capacity or you're at the edge of your skill, you know, you've got strong feedback and there's these mysterious experiences where like time dilates or you can go without eating or sleeping or whatever. You become like perfectly focused and you know the ego dissolves and kind of this weird stuff starts going on and i'm sure that people some people listening to this juggling podcast right are like already nodding and already know what i'm talking about (laughs) yes i mean we're all familiar and nowadays at the igas we have a a flow show element and a flow zone because i think the people in the juggling community kind of see how these two different schools of thought are now sort of connected more than they were originally well, and that brings us to the third and I guess kind of final popular definite, uh, you know, use of the word flow, and it's to describe a scene, a scene of object manipulators who largely select different props than like conventional jugglers. You know, Diablo isn't juggling per se, but it's lumped in with juggling more than it's lumped in with flow arts, so to speak, right? A staff juggler, like a fire staff juggler today might be more considered like a flow artist just because the segregation is mostly done by props between the flow arts scene and the juggling scene, right? So the three definitions, I guess, of like flow that I, that I come across the most are literal sequencing, the flow state, and the flow community, the flow arts scene, right? And I guess, you know, to give my personal take on it, I think I think about it kind of like this. There's a term visionary arts in the art world, like in the visual arts world, people talk about visionary art. And visionary art is code, essentially, for art that is informed by psychedelic drugs, essentially. If you look at the paintings, they look, they're super fractal, they're really mystical, they're all very holy and very spiritual. Like it's really like visionary art is about capturing that psychedelic experience in visual art. But you can't say like psychedelic art, like, oh, we're going to have a psychedelic art party, then the police show up, right? I think that, that to me, like flow arts are the visionary art of fire dancing. Now, do you think uh, music plays a bigger part in the flow arts then than in straight juggling? Yeah, for for sure. I mean, I think that music is really central to if you go to like a flow fest, generally, the shortest way I can give a a description of a flow fest is workshops all day, fire dancing and bass music all night. Right. They also always have a a music element during the gym jam sessions where for the IJ for a long time until recently, there was no music played. 
yeah, if I were to talk about a juggling festival, my short version of what a juggling festival is, I don't think it includes music. I say, you know, workshops all day, Friday and Saturday, Friday night, renegade show, Saturday night, gala show, and then maybe games on Sunday. Music isn't central to any part of that necessarily. Now, do you think that flow also attracts more of a fringe element, meaning it's more of a scene? You can go to a, a flow festival and maybe be more of a dabbler in the art, but also enjoy more of the cultural aspects than maybe a non-juggler could at a juggling festival. Uh, no, I think that's true of juggling festivals too. And maybe I'm spoiled because my first juggling festival was Humboldt, but <laughs> okay. uh, which is like very friendly and down to earth. And it's very kind of, it's like a little bit folksy kind of, but I think that one thing that I always remember having thought about as a new circus person, because I came into circus, I'm, I'm an adult onset circus performer. I started juggling when I was like 20, early 20s. Ju started juggling seriously. I had a little bit of experience with it when I was a little kid. It's like I did it until it got hard and then I quit. And then 10 years went by and then I got into it, really into it. Do you remember the first time you were aware of juggling? I mean, did, did you see a juggling performance? Can you tell me when it first sort of reared its head in your life? Oh, yeah. I have formative memories of the first two juggling shows I ever saw. One was um, Jason Quick, the one-arms juggler. Yeah. Uh, he's from, he's, he and I share, well, I'm from there. I don't remember if Jason is from, from Bellingham or not, but he's been there long enough that he's been there since I, I think I was born, maybe. He's, a, he's quite a bit older than me. But I remember seeing him when he was young, and I was very young. I was like a, a child. Uh, and I saw him juggling on a unicycle, wearing a maybe a top hat and tails or something, something like that. I saw his street show at our local festival, and I remember that. And then I remember seeing a juggler at some other street fair, maybe the same one another year or something. It's all in weird kid time in my memory. But I remember I remembered his face well enough that way later, while trick-or-treating, we went to his house by happenstance, and I saw his face when he came to the door, and I was like, hey, are you that guy Mike Cochrane? And he goes, yeah, I'm Mike Cochran, like really confused. How does this kid know my name? And I was like, oh, cool. I saw your juggling show. And he was, it was just one of those moments, you know, where some, some little kid who's seen your show comes up to you and it's like, hey, I saw your show, but you're in the store or something. And it's like really, I think it's really sweet. Those kinds of experiences. Oh, wow. Gosh, you remember it? Oh, cool. Oh yeah. Oh, art. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your early experiences. You say you really didn't sort of take up juggling seriously until your twenties. Let's go way back then to the beginning of Richard Hartnell's life. And what were you like as a kid and your what did your parents do and what was life growing up like in Bellingham, Washington? That's an interesting question with regards to like uh, to my juggling journey. My mom was a printer by trade. She was a tradesperson my whole life. She still is. She took up her father's trade, which was um, running a printing press. She's like a printing press operator. So she's like a machinist kind of not like making machines, but like she operates a big piece of machinery. My dad uh, has been like a, an IT guy forever since before IT was really like a household acronym. He helped build some of the computer networks at the local university, and then they hired him on to build the internet for this kind of medium-sized college town's public school district. And he did that forever until he retired. Now here's a really dumb question. I'm sure I know the answer. IT, is that internet technology? Is that, am I? Yeah, yeah, information technology. He uh, He's like a, a system admin for like a school district's internet network. Information, okay, gotcha. So I know I've heard that expression. I know I should know that, but uh, being very computer illiterate myself, I want to just to clarify, it's information technology. Thank you. I guess jugglers don't have a, a lot of need for IT people. But there's a lot of crossover, of course, between people who are interested in technology, interested in computers, and who are also interested in juggling. 
Yeah, sure. Nerd, nerds. Like I was a big nerd. Like I was like a nerd nerd and uh, in school, you know, I was really into computers and video games and stuff. I hung out with a bunch of other nerds. We were smart kids. My parents taught me how to read like right away. And I was really precocious as a kid, but I wasn't really into practicing stuff. I mean, I was into practicing like stuff I was into, but not drills. I wasn't really into drills. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of funny that I became a juggler later. Are we into sports or any kind of physical activities? No, not really. I played a lot of video games. I mean, I ran around a lot. I was definitely run aroundsy, precocious, athletic kid. I played soccer and stuff, but my heart wasn't really in it. Not like anything that my heart was really into. I was mostly really into computers and everybody thought I was going to be like an like a software engineer or something, but I didn't really have that much patience for like learning how to code. I learned a little bit of coding and I made these weird worlds when I was a kid, but it was really primitive stuff. It wasn't like video games. And what did your parents think? I mean, this is once again jumping uh, further ahead. When they saw you as a professional juggler and as a performer, was it were they taken by surprise? Were they supportive or did they kind of feel like you sort of wasted some potential they wish you would have explored more? I really lucked out in that my parents have always been supportive of whatever stupid thing I wanted to do and just let me make my own mistakes and uh, also taught me a lot of stuff. They were there and very supportive. I never got into too much trouble. So I got the impression that I kind of had their trust. Well, I think that's important. Like you said, if you don't get in too much trouble, like if you're a good kid, I think your parents worry about you less. If you're messing up in other things, they think you're going to mess up in whatever profession you choose as well, unless you choose something more straight. Yeah, possibly. I mean, but if I had had more square parents, then by the benchmark of a lot of parents, I'm like the worst degenerate loser, right? But by the standard of my parents, I'm super accomplished and uh, really insightful and wise and a huge success and all that. So it's kind of, it's a big question. It's kind of funny about like uh, parental support and that sort of thing. I mean, on the other hand, you know, I don't, I don't come from a circus family, not at all, but there's circus families where like, you know, it's like five, what, five balls by five years, right? What is that the, the benchmark or something? Well, it seems like the most accomplished jugglers, whether you look at Anthony Gatto or Chris Cremos or Albert Lucas, there is some real advantage for starting super, super young. For sure, for sure. I was in gymnastics as a kid, but I kind of got bored and wasn't that interested and bailed out, partially because I could do everything that they wanted me to do. And I just like started horsing around, you know? And then instead of somebody being, oh, that kid's bored, like make him do harder stuff, it was, well, I don't know. If he's not into it, like let's just put him in something else. My, my parents and I josh about that still because I couldn't have known any better. I was a kid. They couldn't have known any better because it wasn't a circus family. You know, it's not like they were going to be like, no, get your backflip, do it now. They're not athletes, right? Now, did they push you into music? Because it seems I had read in my notes here that you're classically trained in the viola. What age does that happen? And, and what uh, attracted you to the viola? Yeah, I've always been musically inclined. My parents always had music in the house. We had a little Casio keyboard in the house. You know, it was just something I was always exposed to. I listened to a lot of children's music growing up. I remember going to children's festivals and going to like Raff, see Raffi and Sharon Lewis and Bram and Fred Penner and all of these kids artists like in concert and stuff. Watched a lot of musical TV and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's just always been in my life and I've always had a knack for it. It took me a long time to realize that there were people who weren't educated in music and couldn't really hear it the way that I could, which I've always thought is a little bit sad. Kind of like now that I know how to juggle, people who don't know how to juggle, oh man, but you could just you just learn how to do this and your life would be objectively better. And I try and find those things in life that other people are trying to like tell me to do and just do them and be like, oh, I could just take a weekend learning Excel programming or I could just take a weekend learning fundamentals of economics or whatever. Okay, if you're that serious about it, you can tell that look or that disappointment when somebody like has true knowledge that's like right there, like low hanging fruit that's really accessible. But most people are just like, eh, I don't know, man, the TV's on or uh, no, you know, I gotta, I'm busy. Well, that's one of the uh, sad things about juggling that here we're sitting on this activity 
that's got to be one of the greatest activities ever created by mankind. If you look at it sort of objectively, the idea that it's, it, it's so available with three, three objects, three oranges, three baseballs, uh, unlimited potential of opportunities of expression, of different patterns. It's not dangerous. There's no violence. There's no injuries, really. It's a little dangerous. Well, it can be a little dangerous. But as far as just this, this accessibility, like we're talking before about the flow state, just yeah. the activity of doing the basic three-ball cascade, it takes such a combination of sort of a physical and mental approach. But yet, most people you talk to, they look at it and they're like, for some reason, they're just not interested. I think most people have a flow practice of their own. I think the nature of a flow practice is that it's something you can study forever and never finish. Because part of the research about flow states is that they occur on the boundary of the threshold of your like challenge level, right? So it's like the intersection of high challenge and high skill. And if you have high challenge and low skill, you're frustrated. And if you have low challenge and high skill, then you're bored. But if you have high challenge and high skill and you're like on your edge, that's where you find the flow state. But that means that as your skill improves, the ritual you were using to create a flow state is broken and you have to put in harder tricks or add more objects or do it on one foot or do it while making a face or like challenge yourself somehow. And you have to be doing that forever for as long as you want to maintain the practice, right? I think most people who have like one or two or three flow practices, I think they're going to be inclined to maybe see something like juggling and be like, okay, I have respect for that, but I'm not going to do it. Right, but they see the, they see the purpose of it. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that I can like appreciate somebody who's really good at piano, but I'm never going to be as good a pianist as I am a contact juggler. Now, are you still playing any kind of a musical instrument or did that phase kind of come and go in your life? No, no. I've always been obsessed with music and it's always been a part of my life. Um, I was, so I was classically trained at viola. I started when I was in fifth grade because my older, smarter, handsomer friend was into viola also. And I was like, that seems cool. I'll learn how to do that. Then I stuck with it until the end of high school. I thought about going to some music colleges and whatever, but I never had the taste for drill. I had a friend who, she was into drills. She was really smart and she was into drills and she played violin super hard. She would practice for hours in a session and I would be like, that's crazy. I couldn't imagine practicing for hours. In the meantime, I'm marathoning these video games. I'm like becoming a tournament level video game player because that's what I feel like spending hours on. This is in the 80s and the 90s when nobody actually cared about video games and esports were not a thing. Which they're a big thing now. You can make millions of dollars. They're a big thing now. I would have been like a million dollar gamer and I always kind of think about, is it too late to strike up a practice? Is it not late enough? Some people are saying the same thing about video games is there about juggling that if you're younger or especially acrobatics that like you should expect to get out of it by a certain age because of things like subtle cognitive decline. On the other hand, I'm kind of the equivalent of a circus baby in the gaming world, but I'm of an age where there's not a lot of us who have been playing games that hard for that long. And I've taken breaks from gaming and all that kind of stuff. This is sort of tangential, but uh, I guess to bring it back around, I would say gaming was my first flow art. I wouldn't have called it as much and I didn't realize it at the time. But um, it's one of those things where the more you do it, you start terrible at it. And then the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the better you get at it, the more you want to do it. That wraps around to what I was thinking about uh, with regards to juggling festivals. The thing that I had to remember when I was a, a wee circus artist was when I felt insecure, when I felt like, oh, these people think I suck. I can't even juggle three things. Oh, they're probably all laughing at me. I remembered everybody in this room sucked at juggling once. Everybody has been bad at this. Even Wes Peden didn't know how to hold a thing once. <laughs> a long time ago. We've all had to learn this through struggle. Now, I think Wes Peden to me is, is a phenomena. I mean, you see a lot of jugglers. The amount of material he creates, the way his mind works, is revolutionary, if you ask me. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I think so. Otherwise it wouldn't be such a, uh, yeah, such a phenomenon, right? So Wes Beaton came and did a, a workshop, a couple of workshops at Fire Drums a few years ago. And um, at one point he started talking kind of about general creativity and like uh, just technique for generating things. And all of it was really kind of, I mean, it all made sense, you know, but I think that the real deal was that he just did it. I felt like every time I saw him write kind of a general concept of creativity, like make your choreography really dense, make a sequence that's really, really full and really thick and full of stuff. Like, oh, yeah, no, I definitely have like thought that before. And almost everything that he said, I was, oh, yeah, that's like an obvious, really great creative principle. But then to just sit down and apply all of that, to make a list of it and apply all of it to your art until it's done. That's something else, because often you'll see like one or two or three of these sorts of general truths about what makes art good, like density and complexity or challenge or an emotional component or visual beauty and patterns or something. Often a lot of the acts that really excel only still excel in a couple few of these domains. Right. But if you have somebody who's willing and able to to just do all that, then, yeah, that's something else. But theoretically, anybody could do that. Right. Well, they say that the, the difficulty in, in achieving true genius is the two different personality types, types it takes. That you have people who are diligent, but sometimes they lack any kind of original thought or real creativity. Then you have the creative types who lack diligence. So when you have someone who combines both, they're both creative and diligent, they're willing to do the practice and they have the original thought they want to express, that's a rare individual. And I think, you know, obviously Wes Peen combines both those. He has this, first of all, he had a very early start. His father was a juggler, but he had this original sort of approach that was fostered by other original jugglers, especially Jay Gilligan, I imagine, was probably one of his formative influences. So this idea of finding your own direction became important early. But then for some reason, he had this ability, which he must have had, to practice for endless hours, to create so much material at such a high level, the amount of practice he must have done. I don't know, I never talked to him personally about it, but it must be up in the eight hour a day range at certain points. I would imagine. Now, let me ask you a question about flow. Do you think it's impossible uh, possible to achieve the flow state vicariously? Let's say somebody is watching a, a sports team they really enjoy and they get involved in it. Would you consider that a flow state? That's why people watch sports, I think. That's a big reason people watch sports. Right, uh, so because they get in touch with it and lose track of their ordinary existence. Yeah, and yeah, it's entertainment to a degree, but I think it's also inspiration. I think that when you're watching somebody do something, it feels a little bit like doing it. And I remember, I remember my first time getting this, uh, this contact staff trick in a workshop because the teacher gave me this piece of advice that just made the trick all sync up all at once. I would like try it almost, I almost gotten it a bunch of times. And then she was like, Oh, do this. And then I did that. And all of a sudden it's just like, blah, 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 the trick just <laughs> happened, you know, and it ended up, uh, you know, rolled behind my head and over to my opposite hand and I caught it. And my first realization was, man, that felt just like watching somebody do it. Like, it feels like it looks like it feels <laughs> like. Right, right, right. It's almost like it's almost an out-of-body experience almost. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like an out-of-body experience. So uh, I think that it's sort of like an like an in-body experience, right? But it's like something that's being done to you from the outside. So you're having an experience or a feeling in your body, it's like resonating with you in some way by watching somebody do it. I think that that's why we call it a trick, 
because I do something and it sort of forces you to react in a predictable way, right? If I trick you into something, I trick you into doing something. But what if I'm just tricking you into saying like, wow, or what if I'm tricking you into smiling and laughing? What if I'm tricking you into, you know, into wanting to practice more because you're inspired? These are all tricks to make people feel a certain way. So it's sort of like this, it's like a spell. I think about juggling as real magic, like the kind that works even if you don't believe in it. Uh, and music is the same way. You do these techniques, you execute these techniques that make people feel a certain way. So it's not just about entertainment. It's also about inspiration, I think. And like, yeah, making people feel something and maybe some, feel something so strongly they forget something that they're trying to forget. But also to, yeah, to inspire, to create a desire to, to change yourself or to improve yourself or to go back to practice or to, I don't know what, to see everything differently. Well, let's talk about inspiration. Now, you're known mostly as a contact juggler. I love this expression that you have on your website as a sphere charmer. That's a very uh, very visual, descriptive name for contact juggling, a sphere charmer. So who was the first contact juggler you saw? Let's talk a little bit about sort of the roots of, of contact juggling, where you saw it develop, and maybe a little bit of its history, if you don't mind. I'm still trying to find the concisest way to tell this story. The first contact juggler I ever saw was a guy at a at a, con, a convention, a, like a fan convention for science fiction and fantasy nerds. Me and all my nerd friends went. We had a great time. I used to DJ parties there. One time I played a party that was so over the top that we broke the air conditioning on that floor of the hotel. The place was just slamming. It was so good. At any rate, I so I went to this conference and I was, I was kind of beginning to be known as a DJ because that's what I did at the kind of end of high school, early community college. On my first did in community college was I got really into DJing. I already had musical training. I could count rhythms. I thought it was kind of cool. I thought I'd be cool if I was a DJ back when you were. And there's a term in DJ, beat juggling. Is that any, any connection to actual juggling? What is beat juggling? The origin of, of hip hop is actually a DJing. And not in rapping. They kind of came up together and the it all came from turntables, right? Where you would uh, you'd have two turntables and they'd be playing the same record. And you'd have a part in the record where everything drops out except for the drums. Maybe you're playing like a funk record, it gets to the part in the middle where James Brown's like, everybody shut up except the drummer. And then the drummer just plays like a cool beat for like a bar, a couple bars, a few bars, right? This little cool drum solo that's just like a beat by itself maybe a bass or something. Like a break, like a break in the music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a break. And you take the records and you put tape on them really carefully so that the, the needle will always end up in the groove right when the break starts. And you play the break on one record. And then while that record is playing, you line up the second break, which is the same break, right? So you're making a loop. And you line it up. And then the, the instant that that break ends on the first record, you slap the crossfader over so that only the other turntable is playing and you give it a little push so that it goes back to the beginning of the break. And that's where the term break beats are from. That's like what a break beat is. And then when you juggle them back and forth between the two, the two turntables, so you go back and forth. Is that the, the beat juggling part of it? So beat juggling comes in where you start doing this instead of like, so, you know, the second, the second break is now playing. You go back to the first, you go back to the first break in your headphones and you wind the record back up. You just move it with your fingers and you spin, 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 spin it back really quickly until you get back to the beginning of the break, the beginning of the loop. And then the, the instant the break ends on the second record, you bring the crossfader back over and you let go of the first record and you're back at the beginning of the loop. And you can do that for as long as you want, you know, as long as your friend can rap rapper's delight or whatever you do it for five. Five, 10 minutes and you make a hip hop song. But uh, if you want to get tricky, you can do tricks, right? So technically making a break beat like that is a beat juggle, but you can do really, really tricky beat juggling where you're not looping every, you know, eight bars. 
You're not looping every, maybe you're looping every bar. Maybe you're looping every half bar. Maybe you're looping every quarter note, right? And you have, there's like really fast, tricky juggles. And like, you should just go and look at beat juggling on YouTube and like wonder and marvel at the feats of turntablism that people can do, uh, which is why DJing was my second flow art. Uh, and that was the first time I ever heard somebody use the word flow to describe a flow state was this DJ Qbert who, um, you know, who described that sort of feeling and that phenomenon. Uh, and I used his quote about that in, um, oh, this wraps around to one of your questions earlier. Uh, that that's, uh, he, he has this, this interview where he's talking about the flow state and he's like, ah, oh, you know, some Kung Fu stuff. And like, you have these dissociative experiences and, you know, you get in the flow and nothing can stop you. And they're cutting this interview with a piece of a performance that he gave somewhere where he's like in the flow. You can just see it. He's like gone, you know, <laughs> and he's like, like his eyes are half lidded and his hands are just like, like blazing. Like he's just in it, you know, and he's throwing this incredible uh, breakbeat that he's making out of just like one record, one noise on one record, just scratching this record. Uh you know, and you can see it and it kind of feels a little bit like doing it, like to, to watch him have that state is like, a, is also like a mystical experience. And I think like the way he puts it is that in those moments, if you're a performer, what you thought was happening was that you were there playing like an instrument or a prop for the audience. Right. But what you realize in that moment is that you're the instrument and the universe is playing you. That's cool. <laughs> I like that. I like that concept. Well, they always say that great art is a lot of people say, oh, there was something working through me. Like as a painter yeah. or a writer, I was a conduit to some greater thought. Or a channel, yeah. A channel, yeah. So you're at this this DJing, you're DJing this party. DJing was your second flow state at, after the sort of music in general. Is that where you first saw a contact juggler? Yeah, so I saw a guy at the, the big dance party, contact juggling. And, I, and, you know, I'd seen Labyrinth 100,000 times when I was a little kid. It was like a family movie in my family, and I, I, I've seen it countless times. I'd meet people who were like, oh, I thought it was all special effects. I thought all of the crystal balls in the movie were special effects. And I was like, no, 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 only some of them were special effects. And I could see that when I was a kid. I, I just saw him doing contact juggling, and I was like, oh, somebody's doing that. Right, somebody else's hands are wrapped around his body. It looks like the character in the film is contact juggling. Like, I, right. I believe the, like the Goblin King could contact juggle somehow. Gotcha. But we know, looking back, that was that was Michael Motion doing stuff. Actually, Michael Motion. I had no idea until like high school or college or something. Where people who just hear who are fans of the film, they hear these stories. Of, oh yeah, did you actually hear it was another guy with his hands back around David Bowie? Maybe I knew that. Maybe I didn't. At any rate, I saw somebody contact juggling in person, and I was like, you can just you can just do that, and it just clicked for <laughs> me. And I knew that there was a guy in the other room selling this book about it, and I went into the next room. And I bought this book, Contact Juggling. I had it, yeah. Was it, his name was Ernst or something? What was his name? By James Ernest. You know, it's just like any juggling manual. Learn this and this and this and this and this trick. Do these things and don't do these things. And then, uh, you know, if you follow all the directions, you'll at least get decent. And I practiced and practiced until it got hard and then I quit. I like messed around in the summer, you know, all summer and whatever and got like a crappy version of the first trick with one hand. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then, you know, I never really saw a reason to continue. So I, I stopped. Years later, I was working in clubs by this point, really kind of making a name for myself in Bellingham and whatever. I was nominated as best DJ in the local arts mag one year. And much of my friends invited me to this festival called the Summer Meltdown outside of Bellingham. I knew some circus people I knew were going and I knew them through this girl who worked in this club. And I went out there with her 
because I knew she was tied in with this troupe from Bellingham called the Dream Science Circus, which was like a really well-dressed variety show. It was really the town darling. And they performed all over the region. And I kind of made this resolution. I knew there was a contact juggler there who was going there, who I kind of had a crush on. And I was like, I'm going to make a plan for this festival among all of my plans for the festival. This plan is going to go like this. I'm going to get my left-handed butterfly. I'm finally going to give up on like procrastinating on drilling my offhand. And I will learn that other trick. And then... I will also find this contact juggler and I will ask her to teach me a trick. That's what I did. I went to the event and I found her and I was like, hey, what's up? Uh, I've kind of been doing this thing. I understand manipulation is important in this community. That's not the language that I use, but that's basically what I told her. You know, do you have any advice? And at first she was like, oh yeah. And she took the little crappy pink toy ball that I was using and she handed me a stage ball, like a proper 100 mil stage ball. She showed me a couple of tricks and I messed around with them for a while. I was at the festival and I had this kind of fateful experience uh, when I was watching a bunch of fire dancers and I really realized that of all of these flow arts that I was practicing, DJing and uh, video games and also barista craft, like I think that that was really my like if video, if I had to pick an order, it would be video games first, barista craft second, like the service industry, DJing third. I'm inducing these mystical states. I'm practicing getting over my ego in this like ego dissolving practice. Like I don't have like a dance or a movement practice or something. And that seems like a missing category of these means of achieving this meditative state. Uh, and I resolved to become a great poi spinner. <laughs> okay. Because I was watching this fire show and I, you know, I bought a pair of flag poi for my friend and I played with them all weekend. I learned a couple of few tricks, the same tricks that everybody else learns in their first weekend of poi. Right. The weave or something, the basics. I learned a two or a three beat weave and I learned the butterfly classic, right? Like yeah. poi one, uh, intro to poi workshop tricks. Little did I know, I had also gotten myself over the point at which I had a working technical alphabet for contact juggling. The point at which it goes from trick, 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 trick to like being able to kind of make words and sequences and like dance with it a little bit. And I went home and I fell in with the Dream Science Circus. I saw their show and I kind of realized that we were on the same wavelength, like creatively. We had a lot of similar purposes for making our art and we were into really the same kind of jive, so to speak. I asked my friend how to get caught up with them and there was a juggling club there was a weekly juggling club and 50 juggling clubs later i was pretty good my friend was throwing really good shows uh, jules mcavoy schaefer of bellingham washington jules the juggler of the juggling jollies i watched him throw his three show at the farmer's market where i was working slinging coffee a hundred times at least and i got to realizing like oh man maybe i should start busking i should start throwing some street shows and i threw my to borrow a term from don Manette, the great Canadian contact juggler. Uh, I threw my hundred crappy street shows that everybody throws at the beginning of their busking career. Yeah, you have to get those out of the way, right? Before you can be any good, you, you did a hundred crappy ones first. Mercifully on a small, isolated community where the damage can be controlled. So you started as a street performer as a poi spinner or as a contact juggler? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I never really went back to poi after that first weekend of workshops. It just didn't speak to you? It didn't, it didn't touch you? Ball was really everything to me when it started getting really fun. Like I got the bug. I crossed the threshold where it stopped feeling like a chore and started feeling like something I wanted to do just because it felt good. Now, I know there was some controversy with Ernst's book because uh, when Michael Motion sort of found out about that and he found out that the people were doing contact juggling, it was sort of an art form he felt ownership of. What was your take on that controversy and, and what's your feeling towards... Uh, Michael Motion and his work in general. At the time, I had no opinion. Right, because you had no concept, yeah. The origin story of contact juggling goes like this. Okay. Michael Motion used to pass clubs with Penn and Teller. Yeah, they were, they were partners with Penn Gillette. They had this studio space somewhere, and one day Penn was walking by a store window, and he saw a bunch of clear balls in the window, and he was like, yes, juggling act. And he went in and he bought them all, and like you do with all of the props that you think are going to make a great juggling act, he put them in a bag and put them in the corner of the studio and forgot about them forever. 
And one day, Michael Motion came in. He said, hey, Penn, do you have those, those crystal balls that you were going to use for an act? Never. And Penn was like, oh, yeah, sure, uh, they're over there. And, and Michael Motion took them, and he took them away. He made two acts. And Motion has always been about purpose in his art. You shouldn't be doing anything for no reason. And the narratives can be super abstract, and the purposes can be super hidden. But you should identify them and make art around them, because that's kind of what art is about in like Michael Motion land. You're telling a story in some way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like art exists for reasons and we should learn those reasons, like either by reading books about art or making art or seeing art or just like understanding like what art essentially is about. Because like circus feels like a huge world, but it's also a tiny microcosm of what else is going on. What are we actually communicating about? And we can really kind of communicate about anything like human fragility or danger or excitement or love. I mean, common classic kind of love story told in a circus show or something. In this case, Michael Motion was making two acts to sort of metabolize his process around, I believe, his sister's recent diagnosis with brain cancer. Everybody was basically starting their kind of death process, not really sure whether she was going to make it or not. It's a serious prognosis. So he made these two acts with these crystal ball props. And the constraint, the rule of the act was that he wasn't allowed to hold on to anything. So it's sort of about the impermanence of life, that you can't hold on to life, that you had to keep it moving, keep it flowing. That's about what it was for him. The general message is just let go or one of letting go. There's this weird kind of hidden aspect in contact juggling where you're having control by letting go of control. It's half about telling the ball where to go and also half about just already being where the ball is going to go anyway. And that's the nature of the feedback loop in contact juggling. You think you're sending the ball in a certain direction that ends up going off in a slightly different direction and you have to adapt and make a new path and sort of cradle the ball and be where it already wants to go to a degree and then to take control again and redirect it in another way. That's funny. That sounds like what they say why Wayne Gretzky was so great a hockey player. He knew where the ball was going to be or the puck was going to be. Like it wasn't like he put it somewhere. He knew where it was going to be. So mm -hmm. it, was like, it was like ahead of the curve. So you feel that's in contact juggling as well? Like you're sort of ahead of the curve. You're, you're sort of controlled, but you're out of control at the same time. I think that's why James Ernest called it contact juggling or called it a form of juggling. And I think that all manipulation is like that. Like the more, the better you get at it, the more you're able to see what's going to happen. You can sort of refine the outcome in your, I don't know, in your consciousness or in your mind's eye or something so that you know where the ball is going to be. If you slightly threw to your right or something, then your body is sort of automatically adapts to a little bit to the right. If you're good at juggling, if you're bad at juggling, then you just bail. <laughs> right. You miss it and you drop or something. Your ability. And that's why, you know, I, earlier I used the term, the phrase true knowledge. That's like the real superpower of juggling is being able to predict the future, to look at somebody throwing five balls in the air and be like, that's going to happen or be like, that's not going to happen, <laughs> you know, or to see something falling off of a table and be like, I know where that's going to go and just be there with the foot catch under the laptop or whatever. <laughs> now, did Ernst uh, coin the phrase contact juggling or was that a, a term Michael Motion used? Yeah, so that's the other beef with James Ernest basically lifting his colleagues' techniques and putting them in a book and, and then separating it off as contact juggling. A, yeah, that's motion's technique. I mean, yeah, okay, people were body rolling and stuff since the ancient times. But the stuff that Motion did with a crystal ball in his acts and in the film Labyrinth, that hadn't really been done before Motion. Of course, I think everybody listening to this podcast is generally going to be a juggler. But my shorthand for why Michael Motion is such a big deal is that Michael Motion has invented more props that are in use by contemporary object manipulation people than most of us really master in our careers. And contact juggling was one of those. S-staff, like modern S-staff technique is one of those. 
and of course the famous triangle act and uh, though that's not popularly done uh, hoop isolation a lot of modern hoop isolation is motion's technique but, you know motion was a generalist right besides being a very purposeful artist he was a generalist about manipulation to motion we weren't learning different props like hoop or staff or club or ball we're learning different principles of motion like something swinging or throwing something and catching it again or rolling something on your body along some axis or balancing something either statically or dynamically and some props teach us these principles better than other props like obviously hoop is more of a contact prop than a diablo for reasons but that's why all styles is the best style you learn all styles you learn all props and then you become a master of, of motion which as an animal turns out to be pretty useful well, because there's carryover. Everything we learn influences the other things we learn. I'm inclined to believe that too, though it's uh, that's hard to pin down in research. But you've been kind of sort of a, a specialist. So you, you sort of gone against that mode a little bit. Uh, when I got to the Bay Area, I found Greg and I asked him to teach me this trick and he did. And then while we were just hanging out and jamming, he asked, uh, do you spin contact staff? And I was like, no, not really. I have some friends who kind of do it. They could show me some stuff. But uh, I feel like if I'm going to jump to another prop, it's because I'm trying to get the thrill of victory with a basic technique because I'm procrastinating on grinding on my intermediate contact juggling technique or my advanced contact juggling technique. And Greg was like, yeah, I can hear that. That makes sense. Uh, but I can also tell you that where you are with this prop, you'll learn more about ball in the time you spend learning staff than if you spend all that time learning ball. Interesting. And it was absolutely the case. And the short rationale that I can give for that is that all of the intermediate behind the neck contact staff tricks are all of the impossible advanced behind the neck contact ball tricks. And when did you start performing? I mean, as far as you, you're developing all this amazing technique, did you always feel the need to sort of develop the performance element of it? Or was it purely at first to experience these flow states? Or was there always the goal of becoming a performer with it? I was always kind of shy until I became a performer, which is funny. Uh, uh, I guess in some ways, but not in others. That's uh, not an entirely truthful statement about myself. But I guess everybody's on some axis of shyness. I was invited to perform by one of the other jugglers. We had this uh, dodgy underground warehouse space that we had incorporated as a co-op. A bunch of the troupe, the Dream Science Circus, had reformed. And there was sort of this entity that blebbed off. Uh, made of some of the artists who had some resources, pooled the resources, and basically like bought a piece of the troupe. And then the troupe went south of town and started a sustainable living center and circus arts retreat called the Lookout Arts Center, which has stupendous events that everybody should attend, uh, including the Circus Camp Out, which is like a circus workshop kind of weekend festival event, and uh, the Shebang Festival Ideas, which is a downhill soapbox derby race and circus party that also runs, I believe, for a weekend, might be a day. So we had the troop out of town at the quarry. We had the space in town that the troop used to run that, that was now being run as a co-op, uh, which I helped write the bylaws for because I had already run a nonprofit to lobby to change a really whack noise ordinance in my hometown that was shutting down venues. We had this co-op and, you know, it ran juggling club and some shows occasionally. And we were basically pooling dues. We were pooling member dues to try and keep this place open, to try and keep the heat on. And uh, it wasn't working. We were a bunch of broke circus performers and we had no money. So one day, Jules, the experienced performer, said, uh, hey, y'all, I have this idea. I want to throw a regular monthly variety show and I want it to be kind of rough and really spur us to be more creative. So here's the rule of the show. Do whatever you want, but don't do it twice. So everybody... <laughs> okay 
could bring right. an act to the show, everybody is expected not to run the same act twice. All of the good performers burn all of their good material right away. Then they kind of have to resort to like pulling something fresh out of their nether regions every month to like try and keep things fresh. In the meantime, novice performers like myself are like blood, sweat and tears, like really to cut our teeth on the first stage we've actually really ever been on for some of us. Um, definitely the first stage I was ever a soloist on. And of course, it's a bunch of covered pallets up on milk crates in a warehouse in the back of an antique shop in a small town. It was fine. Get your hundred bad ones out of the way. They weren't bad at the time. You know, people clapped and had a good time. Being from a small town, I had an advantage because people haven't really seen like the best of the best. And this being a bit before juggling really took off on YouTube and Instagram, people weren't as used to having like a world-class juggler in their living rooms as people are today, which is a unique challenge, but it just means we all got to get better. I think uh, the cure to all jugglers problems. Well, it's harder to impress people when they have access to so much, right? Like you said, right there in their living rooms. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a trick. It's a trick. I don't really know. I mean, since those humble beginnings, though, you've done 23 circus convention galas. So you've been invited to festivals all across the world and you performed in 11, 13 different countries. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's been a bit of a trip. One of the jugglers basically invited me to put an act in, in the show, and I just kept doing that every month and got a lot of performing out of the way and a lot of choreography out of the way. And I guess the other threshold besides for really taking over my life, besides the point at which it went from being a chore to being fun, the other big threshold was when I started making real money busking. Uh, I remember the first day I broke a dollar a minute in my hat, which was on Fisherman's Wharf on the Embarcadero when I hitchhiked to the Bay Area. I remember the first day, the first place and time that I made a month's rent in a day in my hat, uh, which was at the Folklife Festival in Seattle at the base of the Space Needle every Memorial Day weekend. It's like a big busking festival. And at that point, I don't think I had a day job after six months after that, maybe about a year. I think it lasted maybe about a year. And then finally, I just uh, just took off. I just did it all the time. And did you ever do like a, a busking trip through Europe? Did you do that whole scene where you basically had a backpack in your, in your balls and just travel the world? Yeah, for sure. I did that for many years. Well, first I went to the European Juggling Convention because I heard it was the best. And uh, it was my first time overseas. So I burned a bunch of savings and went over and um, just traipsed around for like a month or two. I went to Play Festival and saw London and Bristol. It was great. You know, there's there's such an international camaraderie in the circus community and in the, in the juggling scene. A, everybody knows everybody is broke. So everybody's willing to put everybody else up on their couch. Secondly, everybody is traveling all the time. So everybody gets to go and hang out on their friends' couches. If you're in a big city like SF, everybody comes to visit you. And then that means that if you have a couch that you can put everybody up on, then you have couches in Paris and London and everywhere else. So when I landed in London, had some friends from the contact juggling community and, and they put me up. LCD, who's still a variety performer over in the UK, put me up on their houseboat in the outskirts of London. And I had a houseboat to myself for like a week or two. I mean, just the kindness of others has been I mean, such a central aspect to this whole performing thing. There's like something else besides inspiration and entertainment, I think, that really motivates people about artists and especially working artists. And that's just the knowledge that somewhere there's somebody who's not on the take. Sure. Somebody's pure. Yeah. And people come all the time and they just say like, hey, but like, does this work? And I had two answers. I had a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is, uh, yeah, but the caveat is good health and no kids. Right. Uh, the longer answer is that, you know, they tell you kind of to spend your whole life once you get out of school or once you get out of college or however much school you want to go through. You find the person who's going to pay you the best, who you dislike the least. And you find this kind of equilibrium there. And, you know, you compromise your morals and you make all this, you know, you stack all this paper, you make all this money. 
And then when you get old, you do that until you get old, your body is falling apart and your arms and legs are falling off and whatever. And you take that pile of money and then you spend the rest of your days seeing the world, meeting amazing people and experiencing exotic places. Or you could make your job traveling the world, seeing amazing places and meeting amazing people and... By that merit, I was retired by the time I was 27. And what's the secret, though? Like, you see a lot of contact jugglers, and people ignore them, and they don't make any money. But you were actually able to make money. If you could sort of sum it up, what was your secret? Why were you successful while others weren't? If I had to pick one secret to how you make money on the street, it would be talking. I just started talking. That's really the key. Asking. It's the secret of the power of asking. I'm not the I'm not the hugest Amanda Palmer fan, but that doesn't mean she never says anything good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to just to just ask. It brings it back to gratitude. I have this really formative memory of watching a friend of mine play a really good, really late night show. Uh, he's a great looping guitarist named Morph. Plays tap guitar. Plays like a lap guitar, really, really good. It's also called tap guitar. That's just misspeaking. I remember he played this show, and it was so romantic and so sweet, and I was really taken. It was really a blessing because it's so easy to get so exposed to what happens on the street and just take for granted how magical it all is. But that night, I definitely was taken in, and I was watching. He finished this whole song and had this whole crowd, and then they all came up and they were giving him money. And he was just doing what we do every single time. A big stack of people come up to give you money at the end of your show. He's just telling them thank you. He says, like, looks at somebody, he says, thank you. He looks at somebody else and says, thank you. He looks at somebody else and says, thank you. And it just rang out over and over in my ears, like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's kind of what it's been like this whole time to be blessed slash cursed with this like obsession over something that most people find kind of pointless, that it kind of ultimately is pointless to a degree, on at least some level, not all levels. But to just be able to go into public and stop and be like, hey, everybody, I don't know what you're doing right now, but if you got a minute, just watch me do my thing, please. And having them changed, like really affected to have people just be willing to like come out and be like, oh yeah, I'm in abundance, whatever. Take this, take this fiver, take this 20 or take like what change I have in my pocket. Like I'm broke, but I got what I have and a smile. It's a blessing that's hard to describe the depth of. In addition to being a performer, you're also known as a very prolific workshop leader. You've done 170 different workshops, probably more at this point. Kind of a quick answer. What do you think makes a good workshop leader? What are you looking for when you're leading? And what are you looking for when you're taking a workshop? I think that the number one thing, just the shortest answer I can give to that, is to break everything down as much as possible. To really take everything into its constituent parts and then just teach. And also to anticipate bad habits and tendencies. I always remember my Tai Chi teacher saying, oh, the tendency is to do this. The tendency is to put your foot here. The tendency is to hold your your weight here. And it always meant like the thing your body is going to do that's wrong. And I think to be patient with that, but also to be sort of insistent and to uh, to wag a finger when you have to and to be like, you know, yeah, there is a wrong way to do the trick. But also to really be compassionate and to meet people where they are and then to just bring them into success as slowly as possible, even if it's just like just try and do it a little bit more in plain to just like kind of correct. And then also to give people time to try and find something that you can teach where you can take somebody and correct them a little bit or give them a thing like, okay, here, practice this thing and then give them five minutes or 10 minutes. So it has to be a thing that in five or 10 minutes they can get, you know, like throw one ball back and forth. Okay, now throw two balls back and forth. Maybe there's five or 10 minutes between those two things. But then to know when to do it instead of to sit there and correct and correct them again until they get like frustrated and then you're still trying to correct them. Just got to give them some time to fail. Right. Give them the space for them to sort of learn it themselves as opposed to trying to control the learning process. Yeah, and that's why I like going around kind of from person to person and like giving a little micro correction because if the attendance is good, by the time you've done that for everybody, then everybody's had about five or 10 minutes. That fails when you start getting really big workshops with like 50 or 100 people in them. You've been to over 13 countries. Which would be your first choice to go back? Out of all the places you've been, if you could go, to, if you had a choice, like, okay, you have one place you could go back. 
what would be your first choice? I think that's fairly easy to say. That's back to Edinburgh. That's where I'm going this summer. But because it's become kind of like a second home. My first time overseas when I went to the European Juggling Convention for the first time. On my way out of the EJC, I had heard that the Edinburgh Festival was great. And it was a great street scene. And that was already after I had some chops on the street. And I just went for a weekend to kind of dip my toe in the water that kind of accidentally made several hundred pounds just on the street, just throwing a few shows kind of not that hard, you know, not like I would do in like a day of busking at like Folk Life or the Oregon Country Fair or like a big American busking festival. So I was like, oh, man, this is great. I, like I could pay for a whole trip just coming here at the end of it. So that's what I started doing. I crowdsourced the money to get myself to the Edinburgh Festival one year, and that paid for the next year's trip and half of winter's rent. And then I went the following year. And I went to the European Juggling Convention and then I went to the Edinburgh Festival and I paid for the trip and made half of winter's rent. And then I paid for next year's trip. You know, so every year I would go to the Edinburgh Festival at the end of the European Juggling Convention and I would make back the money on the trip and a bunch of rent for the cold season. So it became kind of like a second home. Like I spent almost a month out of every year there for seven years running, you know, that on my seventh year, I had performed at 10 percent of all of the Edinburgh festivals. Uh, and there's sort of like a traveling family who's there, people who come back all the time. The Edinburgh Festival is a really magical place for a busker because everybody's sort of, you're stepping on each other's toes occasionally, but you're really on the same team and you're getting sick together and you're getting well together. You're having beautiful, incredible shows together and you're getting rained out together. It's just a camaraderie that's kind of hard to describe among really a cluster of several of the best street performers in the world. And then a whole bunch of others from like the best all the way down to the newest. Are you going to EJC this year and then uh, spawn it up with Edinburgh? EJC this year is in Northwest England, which is 10 feet from Edinburgh, at least by the American distance standard. <laughs> yeah, I'll be at EJC too. I won't be, unfortunately. I went to Edinburgh quite a few years back with Barry and we, we did a theater show. So unfortunately, the theater experience there is a bit different than the street experience, especially uh, for a juggler. Uh, yeah, that's that's like the easiest way to lose money. Yes. Luckily, the, we were, the show was produced by the theater. But it was definitely a good way to spend a month making no money, which is what we did. So, but as far as the environment and the shows and the other experiences, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, the Gandinis always go really hard there. Well, I envy you the, the, this, this experience because if, you, if people listening have not been to Edinburgh, it's a unique, special place. And uh, to have gone that many times is, uh, is, is envy worthy. Let's bring it up to the future because at a certain point, you sort of started out as sort of this sort of nerds. You were a barista, you were a DJ, and we didn't even get into the whole idea that you were this extreme coffee nerd. But at a certain point, you decided to kind of, I don't want to say go back to the straight world, but currently uh, you work at a lab. Can you just, just sort of finish up this podcast by telling us what you're, what you're doing currently? Sure. I feel like I should inject a pre-closing note. The punchline to the story about me going and becoming this, I guess, illustrious contact juggler after buying James Ernest's book is that, uh, yeah, it was well known that Michael Motion was very upset about his sort of, you know, back in the day, it was intellectual property sort of getting lifted. And it was very personal art. And it sort of violated his his artistic sentiments, you know, to take this thing and kind of cut it off from the rest of manipulation uh, instead of kind of considering the ball just part of this suite of props. For years and years, it was sort of well known among contact jugglers that Michael Motion didn't like talking about contact juggling he didn't really like contact jugglers like he didn't it wasn't great uh, sort of a sore spot there was famous beef at an old ija festival about it where motion threatened not to come if you know james Ernest was allowed and then the, you know it kind of came anyway but it was all kind of there's bad blood and whatever and motion didn't really go to, to conventions or events or jugglers kinds of things uh, but he was the guest of honor at the 2014 ejc in mill street and i was going and a stack of great california contact jugglers were going including jordan daniels and kyle johnson and the whole 
ridiculously good Ukiah, California contact juggling crew. And of course, all the European contact jugglers. He gave this speech. You know, he was really sweet to us all week long. He really kindly sat with them. My, with you know me and and pokey uh this excellent um hoop isolator who i know pokey yeah good dude yeah pokey and i performed in the same open stage that michael motion saw and he gave a really like kind and generous critique to both of us really positive but in his talk which kind of mortifyingly and also joyously uh he like that's when he critiqued my act that had been on stage the night before he had talked about sort of this new generation of artists the youtube generation including kyle johnson and me and all these europeans like uh, liam and ollie mcp and tom hardman and like ryan mellers and like all of these kind of new school contact jugglers at the time he said yeah like i understand now if somebody kind of bites your technique and sticks it in their video or something it's an honor and like what you all have done with the art that like came out of me then is it's a beautiful lineage and i'm really proud of it now like in hindsight that it's been so long and all that so that's nice that sort of historical wound has has i guess been healed in a way and i was really glad to be able to sort of take it from basically the most ignominious part of his lineage of like somebody who had no idea who he was even just buying this book and practicing it as if it was his own thing and then turning around and becoming a generalist who can really bring my own self into the art and always of course with homage to motion because that's what we did as contact jugglers was always just say yeah he might not like us but we really owe everything to him and we'd like to tell everybody about it but uh now we're all sort of in cahoots nice i've always found him to be a very warm guy very uh, obviously i'm not a contact juggler or i've done it but it wasn't part of my identity so i can kind of see his point but it's nice to hear that it's sort of morphed into this respect for everything you guys have done with it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think maybe that has partially to do with all of us talking about how wonderful Michael Motion was for 20, 30 years or something. At least he knows that we know. And even if the audiences don't necessarily know, like, I think a lot of the audiences know. I, I mean, everybody's seen Labyrinth. Right. But at any rate, to answer the actual closing question, getting, what was it, about getting back into uh, into the square space? Yeah, because you, you had studied cognitive science and neuroscience at Santa Cruz. You mm -hmm. have this computer literacy. You've you're a multilinguist, you're a viola player, obviously a very accomplished contact juggler. So but there's a certain part of you that's not satisfied just being a performer and you've moved back into sort of this intellectual pursuits as a, a in, in labs and as a lab analyst. What are you currently doing and can you explain it simply to our audience? Yeah, so my caveat for being a professional performer was always good health and no kids. And I didn't have any kids, but I did have a, uh, a tooth start falling out of my face. And it's happened before, but uh, this case was a little bit more severe. Okay. And I needed some money. I needed some healthcare money. Yeah, it was a bit of a fix. I jumped into cannabis analysis. I jumped into a cannabis testing lab that uh, analyzes legal California cannabis products for things like um, pesticides and different molecules and uh, you know microbial t contaminants and residual solvents and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's an interesting kind of science gig. It advances drug policy, which I really care a lot about. I've always been like a holistic practitioner. Like I believe in, in holism and I, and I mean real holism. I don't mean holistic like hippie. I mean, also study hippie stuff because if you don't, then you're not a holist either. But I've always been about really studying everything because I found everything mutually informative. Like my, my video gaming practice made my music practice better. My music practice made my coffee practice better. My coffee practice made my, my circus practice better. My circus practice makes everything else better. This is some of the best baristas I ever trained were jugglers. I mean, partially because I could just tell them what to do and they could just do it. They knew how a syllabus worked and that if I gave them the drills as an expert, then if they just did the drills, they would be able to do it. Like if anybody was determined enough to become a great juggler, they could just come to me and I could tell them what to do. And if they just did all of those things. I mean, it's like we could all be Peden if we just did what Peden said to do. <laughs> well, it's like you said, we know how to break it down. If you could break it down and build up the steps 
and you understand that process in juggling, you can duplicate that process in, in other in other forms. Yeah. So it's been kind of like that. There's muscle memory involved. And, you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the better you get at it, the more you want to do it. And it's unfortunate that people will pay a professional wage to, uh, you know, make sure there's not pesticides in your weed and uh, mm -hmm. that they will not necessarily pay artists to continue to live and work in the studio well enough that, like, you're not going to die at 35 of a mouth infection or whatever. Um, I'm not going to die. I'm fine. I got it fixed. Well, maybe one's more selfish, right? One, one has more, more of a personal benefit. If you're a weed smoker, you, you, you need that. Whereas you really don't need art or people, some people don't think they need art, but of course we all do. Well, some people think you don't need to smoke weed either, but like to use their own, right? Why are people consuming art? It comes full circle back to the beginning of our conversation. Why are any of us doing any of this? And I think that there are a bunch of reasons. People want to feel inspired and you can feel inspired like taking drugs sometimes. People want to escape and that's maybe one of the, like the top things that drugs do, uh, at least for a while. You know, I think it's ultimately zero sum because you, A, you come down and B, there's like withdrawal is a thing. You get hungover, you'll go through some kind of withdrawal. Some withdrawals worse than others. No, actually, there's an artificial nature to it, that you're experiencing something that's not really real to the point that it's not created internally. Well, it's all artificial, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if I have to go and watch a juggler juggle to think, wow, the universe is great, isn't that artificial? Why can't I just sit there and think <laughs> that myself? Well, that's true. I'm just sort of thinking of it as sort of a quick fix, and no quick fix really lasts. And so I think that's the same with drugs, is that it, it's, it doesn't last because it's not a real... It's not a real accomplishment to take drugs. It's an accomplishment to learn to juggle. It's an accomplishment to create art. To learn to juggle, sure, but without the audience. Well, I would guess you could learn, I mean, you can learn to juggle and just be a backyard juggler forever. Why would we have shows? Why would Gatto make all of his money from throwing shows and performing for others and not for like just being good at juggling in his room? I think Gatto's a special case where for him, it was sort of thrust upon him. And at a certain point, the financial considerations were greater than the, even the enjoyment of what he was doing. Where for most of us, this yeah. concept, like you were saying, of the idea of being retired is, I want to do something I like doing. I want to travel. I want to meet interesting people. And when we realize we can do that through juggling and through performing, we feel we found this sort of secret. Like, oh, the idea of working all your life to accomplish this thing is we've already done that. We've already been retired. I've been retired for... 40 years because as a professional juggler, I don't really feel like I had a real job. Sure. And, uh, but now you have a real job. And so now you, is that all you do is you test the, the purity of, of cannabis or do you have other, other considerations as well? It's, it's a bit of an ambiguous question. We, we have, it's not just, we're not just testing purity. We're looking for all sorts of like, uh, I think it's 200 and 200 different molecules or analytes or something. Yeah. There's a whole other podcast in there. <laughs> At any, uh, yeah, I mean, what else do I do? Well, that's the funny thing. I'm actually leaving the lab soon because, as it turns out, the cannabis industry is uh, not uh, exactly being taken over by hippies and uh, well-meaning people, uh, let's say. Right. Uh, it's being taken over by the tobacco industry or who's who's taking it over? Anybody with enough money, right. whoever those people may be, your landlords, landlords, or uh, investment bankers, or um, I mean, heck, even uh, what John Boehner he used to be like Republican. Yeah, Speaker of the House. House Speaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he's in the weed biz now. I just saw a YouTube video with him, and now he's a big proponent. When he was uh, one of the biggest anti-cannabis activists, now he's all of a sudden Mr. Cannabis. And I, yeah, you got to well, think the cash register is ringing on that one. 
yeah, we've we've thankfully finally made it more profitable to uh, let people out of prison for smoking cannabis than to keep people in prison for smoking cannabis. Who'd have thought? Yeah. So you're leaving the lab. What's next for you? I am leaving the lab. I'm going back on the road. Uh, honestly, <laughs> I, uh, I have a month-long tour. Uh, in a month, I'll go to the Oregon Country Fair. I'm a, the featured artist of the Flow Fests brand Flow Fests uh, now, like Florida Flow Fest and Northwest Flow Fest and uh, Chicago Flow Fest. There's a or there's a Midwest Flow Fest, a Texas Flow Fest, and a uh, is it a SoCal Flow Fest or a San Diego Flow Fest? I don't remember, but it's in San Diego for sure. They're all throughout the year. I've done a couple few of them, and their producer uh, hired me on to do all of them in the states this year. So I'll be going around nice. to Chicago and uh, Austin, I think. So I'll be doing a bunch of those. I'll be going over to EJC and uh, the Edinburgh Festival again, just for a week just to maybe say some hellos and finally do all of my last Scotland stuff. And then I'll go down to a big um, psychedelic research conference in London called Breaking Convention. I will fly back to the East Coast to visit a really sweet human being who I miss very much because that's love in the circus. And uh, then I'll find a ride from there to Burning Man from the East, connect with people coming East to Burning Man from the Bay Area and go back to the Bay Area from there over about a month. Well, I have to say, that doesn't sound like it sucks. That sounds awfully, awfully sweet. No, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, my toothache is gone, so uh, I guess Good. I can just get back at it. It's been a funny year and a half paying for that and a bunch of other stuff. Money is important. And piece of advice I got from the late Sam Williams, uh, Smerdyukov Karamazov, was uh, if there's anything else you can do to get paid besides juggling, you should do that. But then it puts you back in the time versus money problem of uh, once you have a source for all of the money that you're supposed to have in the society, uh, you're out of time unless you're like one half of 1% of people who just inherit somebody's house and get paid. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your time with me. I, this has been a very interesting podcast. We've certainly ranged a bit far from back crosses and 360s and crotch throws and things like that. But I always like talking with you. You're a very interesting and accomplished person. And I love watching you perform. If people haven't seen you uh, perform your contact juggling, check out Richard Hartnell on YouTube and I find you one of the most aesthetically pleasing and also one of the most professional of all the oh, contact others I've, I've ever seen. So I am a big fan. So thanks again for uh, being on the Drop Everything podcast, Mr. Richard Hartnell. Thanks, Richard. And thanks for having me. See you later, Dan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 71, my conversation with Richard Hartnell. Thank you, Richard. Good luck in Edinburgh and all your adventures on the road. Speaking of the road, I'll be on the road next week. June 24th through June 30th at the IJA Annual Festival in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I hope to see you all there. Before you go, stop by ringdama.com and get yourself a ringdama toy or go to amazon.com and buy my book, Driven to Succeed. Thank you, IJA. Thank you, Richard Hartnell. Now go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.